Please bow your heads with me as we pray once more. Oh, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for triumphing over us in Christ, and we thank you for making us a pleasing aroma to you. And so we do ask now that you would do that in our preaching, that you would awaken those even now who, who do not see beauty in your Son, and that you would encourage us, that you would strengthen us through the ministries. We thank you for your grace, even in all our failures through ministry. We thank you for being strong in our weakness, and so we ask you to be strong now. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Uh, any failures here? You don't, you don't have to raise your hand. I'll just assume that I'm not the only one. Maybe failures in big things. Maybe failures in, at your work or, or, or failures at parenting. Failures as a child. Maybe failures at the most important thing. Maybe failures at, at being a Christian. Maybe failures at ministry. If not, you're good. You don't need the sermon this morning. But if so, let's uh, consider together 2 Corinthians. I invite you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians 2, starting in verse 12, then through the end of the chapter. So 2 Corinthians 2, 12 through 17. While you turn there, I will read it out loud for us, but do please turn there and keep your Bibles open for the duration of the sermon so you can keep our eyes on the text. So 2 Corinthians 2, verses 12 through 17. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Our passage this morning is one of the most unique in all of Paul's letters. We've been preaching through 2 Corinthians. This is a unique point in 2 Corinthians, but also a unique point in all of Paul's letters. In the first two chapters of this letter, Paul has been speaking to a very specific situation. Right? He's giving very specific instructions. He's explaining his actions. He's clarifying things. He's talking to the Corinthians at this moment in time. And to be sure... Paul brought the gospel to bear on everything he said, right? There is eternal significance to everything that Paul was saying to the Corinthians, as we've seen in our sermon series. But the point is, throughout those first two chapters, the letter content has been very clearly situational, addressing this time and place. But today, there's a shift. We see this shift. In our passage this morning, Paul starts a digression, it's not an ordinary digression. It's certainly not a meaningless or distracting digression. It's a great digression. It's a, it's a wonderful digression. This morning begins what we're going to call Paul's great digression. You see at the end of verse 13 in chapter 2, Paul mentions going to Macedonia, but then he doesn't pick up and finish the story or go back to giving instructions to the Corinthians until chapter 7, verse 4. So all of the in-between, all of chapters 3 through 6, are one big exposition of the nature of the ministry and the wonders of the gospel that ground that ministry. That's four chapters of expounding and celebrating the gospel and the ministry of the gospel. So what prompts this great digression? And do we even care? I mean, these are some of the most compact and clear explanations of the gospel in the whole Bible. And it isn't uncommon for Paul to go on theological and doxological, you know, praise-filled digressions where he just starts praising God, just starts talking about the gospel. All right, so who cares how we got this one? Let's just enjoy it. This fair point. However, our passage this morning, we see in our passage this morning the seam, the seam between Paul's personal story and this wonderful four-chapter exposition of the ministry and the gospel. 
And you saw, 12, verses 12 and 13 are the end of Paul's personal account before it picks back up in chapter 7. And verses 14 through 17 are the opening to Paul's theolo- his grand theological, doxological digression. His praise-shaped celebration of Jesus and all that Jesus calls his people to be and do. So, so we're looking at the seam between Paul's personal account and his theological reflection. And it will be beneficial to consider that seam. Why? Why? Right? Why does Paul start expounding the gospel this way at this point? What about his comments cause him to insert these four chapters at this point? Is it anything? Is, is this theological digression totally random and unprompted? Right? Many, many scholars, many readers of Paul assume there is no reason. Right? Paul just goes off on this random tangent because he has ADHD or something. Some even say that these chapters have to be a later insertion. Right? They, they interrupt the story. Someone must have added these later. I think there's more to it than that. In fact, as we meditate on Paul's final account of his travels in verses 12 through 13, and then what God, he starts to say about God in verses 14 through 17, we will see exactly why Paul makes this transition here and exactly why it is all framed as praise. Thanks be to God. Thank you, God. That's how Paul interjects. He's grateful. He can't help it. He can't help but shout his gratitude to God. So why is he thankful to God and why was that gratitude prompted here? That's the sermon this morning. Why is Paul thanking God here? Why now? As we answer this question, let's pray that our our own hearts will be moved to thank God with Paul. So the first step in answering the question, why is Paul thanking God here, is to look at the last part of his personal journey that he narrates before going into this great digression. So look again at verses 12 through 13. Let's think through exactly what Paul is saying. Now remember, just briefly, the situation. Paul had canceled a planned second trip to Corinth because of how difficult and painful his first trip on his journey was. And then to address the problems at Corinth, he wrote them a letter, the severe letter, calling them to repent. And he sent Titus to deliver that letter. And then he made plans to meet up with Titus in order to hear how everything went. Presumably he prayed and prayed that the letter would be received well that the Corinthians would repent and all would be restored in their relationship. Now comes verses 12 through 13 as he narrates what was going on. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. So Paul comes to Troas. Why is Paul at Troas? It says right there, to preach the gospel of Christ. Paul is there for Jesus. Paul is there for his mission. Paul is there to do what Paul does as an apostle, commissioned by God to evangelize the lost and exhort and build up the brethren. But Paul doesn't stay at Troas. Why is that? Now, now sometimes, sometimes Paul goes places and he wants to work there. He wants to serve, but things don't work out. He's been run out of towns before, jailed, beaten, stoned. Sometimes, no matter how hard Paul tried in one area, God would close the door to him, lead him somewhere else. That's where Paul wanted to work. That's where he thought God was leading him, but it turns out God was taking him somewhere else. Paul thinks, I want to minister here. I want to serve here. I see a need here, but it's just not working. God has somewhere else for him to be. God closes the door to him, takes him somewhere else. But is that what's going on here? Look at the back half of verse 12 again. Even though a door was open for me, in the Lord. A door was open. God hadn't shut the door to ministry and trials. In fact, the door was open in the Lord, by the Lord, meaning by the power of Christ, there was fruitful ground. There were people wanting to hear. There were new believers needing to learn. Jesus had paved the way for him. Paul recognized Jesus at work, making Paul's fruitful ministry not just possible, but present there at Troas. And yet in verse 13, Paul tells us that his spirit was not at rest because he didn't find Titus. His spirit wasn't at rest because he was waiting on news from Titus about how the Corinthians responded to his severe letter. He wanted to know what went down. 
He was on edge about whether or not things got worse or whether the Corinthians repented. I mean, you, you, you think about that today, right? You send a difficult text or a hard email, and then you check your phone or your, your Apple Watch every three minutes, even though you have notifications turned on and you're listening. So you'd hear a ding, but maybe in those three minutes, you miss the ding. So you check anyway every three minutes. Got to hear, right? You know this. We know this. We understand this type of anxiety. Now dial it up a thousand. When you're in the ancient world, there are no instant replies. And the messengers literally had to travel hundreds of miles. And you don't even know if the letter got there or if they died on the way or if the people you sent the letter to died. I mean, you wait weeks for a reply. Talk about anxiously waiting for a reply. So Paul's spirit was not at rest. He wanted to hear how things went with the Corinthians. So he leaves Troash, says at the end of verse 3. So I took leave of them went on to Macedonia. Paul left, and he went to Macedonia to try and find Titus. And then the story doesn't pick up again for four chapters. That's it. Why is Paul telling them this? Why is this the last thing he narrates before he, switching, before he switches to his theological, his doxological digression about the greatness of the gospel? Especially since it looks kind of bad. Paul had a gospel opportunity where Jesus opened the door for him and he leaves. He leaves. I mean, what, what kind of application are we supposed to take from that? Sometimes self-care needs to come before ministry. Sometimes God opens a door. There's work to be done. You're equipped to do it. The opportunity is right in front of you, but you're just not in the right headspace. So it's okay to walk on by and leave that open door. And Paul didn't need to give these details either. right? Well, he could have still detailed his travel plans, and he could have just said, I went to Troas didn't find Titus there, was anxious to hear from him, so I went on to Macedonia. I mean, he, he's certainly emphasizing his care for the Corinthians in this, but he could have still emphasized that care just by saying all that. Yet he emphasizes, I went to Troas to preach the gospel. He makes a point of saying that, that I went there for that. And a door was open, and a door was open in the Lord, yet I didn't find Titus, I was anxious, so I went on to Macedonia. Surely Paul knows what a contrast he's setting up with the last time he talked about open doors to, Corinthian, to the Corinthians, right? In 1 Corinthians, at the end of the book, in chapter 16, while detailing his travel plans, he says, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a door for effective work has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. I'm, I'm going to stay in Ephesus because there is an open door, even though there are many adversaries. Paul faced a lot of opposition in Ephesus, that was not an easy time. Yet Paul resolved to stay for years against the opposition. He stayed for years because there was a door open to him. God made a way for fruitful ministry, and so Paul was going to stay. Surely Paul knows that that's in the Corinthians' ears when he says what he says here. Here, Paul goes to preach. A door is opened, and he leaves because he's anxious. And then in verse 14, Paul begins his great digression into the wonders of the ministry and the hope of the gospel, and it all starts with but. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Paul just starts praising and thanking God. He just talked about what we could only understand as a failure. That's the only way to take that. And then he starts thanking God. That but at the beginning of verse 14 is quite intentional. It, is a, it signals a contrast. I had gospel opportunity that I missed, but thanks be to God. Meaning Paul understands that suddenly praising God in this situation is surprising. It merits being introduced with a but. Here, here's a contrast. But, but thanks be to God. What Paul describes in 12 through 13 looks like a failure because it is. And then Paul starts praising and thanking God. It's surprising. That's why he starts with, but, but, thanks be to God. So why? Why does Paul start thanking God at verse 14? Why? Well, what does he tell us about God in verse 14? He says, God in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Triumphal procession. That's a war thing. That's a war thing. That's a, that's a cultural reality that all his readers would have been familiar with. 
It goes back before Rome, but definitely still a big thing in Roman times. When Roman emperors came back from a successful military campaign, there'd be a big parade through the city. There'd be a celebration, marching through the streets. They'd burn incense. There's, uh, you know, food, dance, and there'd be a, a train of captives that they led. And they would, usually important people, usually, you know, like a good representative, like look at the people we defeated. You'd have this train of captives. We see this imagery used of God elsewhere in the Bible. Psalm 68 envisions God as the victorious warrior king, saying, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious. So we can understand God as the victorious king. And my first thought, when I was reading verse 14 of our passage, was that Paul meant this as God leads Paul, leads us as his victorious army. In fact, one of you texted me this week and was like, is that what Paul's talking about? I said, yes, I think it's the victorious army. Then as I spent time studying, I realized, oh, I I led that person astray for a whole week. I was wrong. Lead in triumphal procession. That's that's one big word in Greek. And when you you look outside the Bible, when you you look at the dictionaries, you look at the way it's used in Greek literature, it, it really, it just does. It includes the sense of overcoming, defeating. It's not the word used for leading soldiers. It's the word used for leading captives. Not just leading, but leading the defeated, those you've defeated. Just like how in the Psalm 68 passage we just read, God leads a host of captives. In fact, the only other time the verb from verse 14 is used in the New Testament is by Paul. It's in Colossians. And it speaks when he's speaking of how God triumphs over evil spiritual powers. God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. It's the same word. He put them to open shame by leading them in triumphal procession in Christ. So, Paul says, Thanks be to God who in Christ always triumphantly leads us his defeated foes. Why is Paul using that imagery? Why is Paul casting himself as a defeated foe? Why is he thanking God for defeating him? Now, viewing God's people as defeated foes is also not unheard of imagery in the Bible. In fact, we just looked at one instance of this in the Psalms a couple Wednesdays ago. Psalm 117 says, Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us. Which kind of a bland translation it's military language his steadfast love has prevailed over us his love has overcome us his steadfast love has defeated us the psalmist summons the nations and peoples to praise God to thank him but almost every time the nations appear in the psalms it's negative nations is a term for God's enemies those who set themselves against God's people There are plenty of times the Psalms make clear that God will ultimately defeat his enemies. He will humiliate them. He will destroy them. The Lord will subdue the nations. But in Psalm 117, those who were once God's enemies are called to praise God because his steadfast love, his covenantal love, has overcome them. It's defeated them. God's love is able to overcome and defeat those who were once his enemies. Otherwise, no one would be saved. God's love can overcome all opposition and actually create a people, create a heart in individuals and build his people. In Psalm 117, God's powerful love defeats the sinful opposition within his own people. Sometimes the Bible talks about God defeating and destroying his enemies, which he will. There will be ultimate cosmic justice. But the Bible also recognizes the fact that his people, all his people, started out as his enemies. It's important to see that there are two different types of defeat that God accomplishes in the Bible. Both happen. When Paul says that when Jesus returns in Philippians, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's everyone. But some of those will be subjected enemies whose destiny is hell for all their evil rebellion against the good God. Some of those will be converted enemies, now friends who joyfully, happily bow the knee and proclaim the lordship of Christ. Paul explains this clearly in Romans. We we heard it referenced already in the service a number of times. For while we were enemies, 
we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul is picking up on the same sort of imagery here in our passage. It is a great thing that God has defeated Paul. Because if Paul had his way, he'd still be opposing the church. He'd still be persecuting. He'd be racking up charges for judgment day and God would cast them into hell for all his evil. Paul uses the imagery of a defeated foe to highlight the goodness of God. But in, so we have that imagery in general and Paul's drawing on it. But in verse 14 of our passage, Paul focuses on the present, not, not just the past. Paul is focusing on God's present work, not just his past work of overcoming and, defeat and converting Paul, We Christians were converted, were defeated, past tense. But present tense, God leads us in triumphal procession. Paul's point is to focus on God's present overcoming power in Paul's life. Paul's conversion wasn't just marked by a victory of God over Paul. Paul's present life is marked by God's victory over him. And that's a good Thing. Paul needs God to be the victor in the present just like he needed him to be the victor in the past. Because here, look what Paul says God does with his people as his defeated foes. Present tense. Verse 14. Through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. God uses his people to spread the fragrance of the knowledge of him you had fragrance in the Roman, the Roman triumphal processions. You had the sweet, wonderful-smelling incense that was fitting for the celebratory occasion. Spread abroad. And the knowledge of God that Paul mentions isn't just head knowledge. It means to know God personally. Not just to know about God, but to know him personally. To fellowship with him. To enjoy God as God. As the marvelous creator, the faithful friend, loving father, ever, ever vigilant protector, merciful king. To know God in this sense is to enjoy God, to love and be loved by him. And God uses his people, he uses Paul, to spread the sweetness of fellowship with him everywhere. Notice those two expansive terms that Paul puts in verse 14. God does this always and everywhere. That's very intentional, very important to Paul's meaning here. Because remember, this is in contrast to Paul's failure at Troas. At that time, Paul failed by leaving a particular place. But in God's victory over Paul, he always, everywhere, spreads the sweetness of fellowship with him through Paul, through his people. Paul says, I am so grateful that God defeated me and continues to defeat me. Paul deliberately uses the defeating language because it helps contrast with his own failure and how God is able to overcome that failure. Paul's language highlights how God is able to be strong in his weakness, how God is successful in Paul's failure. That's exactly what Paul will say later in this very same letter. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. That's what Paul's doing by highlighting the situation with Troas in verses 12 through 13 and contrasting that with how God is still victorious despite Paul. I'm so glad that God defeats me because I always get in my own way. Just look at how I left Troas when there was an open door. If it was up to me, there'd never be any successful ministry. If it wasn't anxiety about the situation at Corinth, it would have been something else. But thanks be to God for him always leading me in triumphal procession, spreading the sweetness of fellowship with him wherever I go. Always and everywhere, even when, I, where, when where I go was away from where I, a door he had opened from me. Listen, if it was up to Jeremiah Zuo or Paul Alexander or Tim Lloyd or Julian Hellman or any of us, there would be no successful ministry here. There would be no successful ministry at Grace Covenant Baptist Church. But thanks be to God because he always leads us in triumphal procession. Here, Elgin. He overcomes our shortcomings. He is strong in our weakness. And note, note, Paul's praise and thanks is not just because God is still successful despite Paul's weakness. I mean, that would be praiseworthy in and of itself. 
But Paul's thanks is also because God in his grace, in his kindness, still delights to use Paul. Through us, Paul says in verse 14, through us he spreads the knowledge of him. Not just in spite of us, but through us. He actually uses us. He actually uses anxious door, open door leaving Paul. And Paul actually intensifies the metaphor in the next verse. Look there at verse 15 and into the beginning of 16. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To, other, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Now it's not just, right? You see the intensification of the metaphor. Now it's not just through us the aroma is being spread. But now we are the aroma. Let's camp on the significance of that intensification. And Paul makes it clear. He, he, he unpacks this for us with these three descriptions. We are the aroma of Christ to God. We are the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved. And we are the aroma of Christ among those who are perishing. Notice how Paul is adding something to this picture. In verse 14, we spread the aroma. Now we are the aroma. And Paul adds, not just to all people, but to God. He puts God first. We are the aroma of Christ to God. Why does he say that? How does that fit with everything he's been developing? Paul deepens the imagery to expand on the idea that God does work not just in spite of us, but also through us. He plays with this whole metaphor of good smells. And that's that's why we have aroma in English, right? The word smell is neutral or even bad. We are the smell of Christ. That doesn't work. But this word has strong positive connotations, right? The the word underneath this in Greek always means a good smell. We are the pleasing aroma of Christ to God. This is something pleasing here. You have the good-smelling incense in triumphal processions, but as we've already heard, you also have good-smelling incense in the sacrificial rituals. Paul is probably drawing on that here. I mean, we can tell by the fact of the aroma being said to be to God. In the Levitical rituals, you burned incense in the temple. And you also, uh, there were times you burned incense and spices with the sacrifices, and you burned the sacrifices, and it all made literally a pleasing smell. It probably smelled very good. But Leviticus mentions the pleasing smell explicitly as part of the purpose, as we heard from our Old Testament reading. In fact, over 40 times, 40 times in the law, the pleasing aroma of the sacrifices are mentioned. And that pleasing smell is always specified as being for or to God. This is a pleasing aroma to God. This is a pleasing aroma for God. The point of the sacrifice was to offer something that was delightful to God. That's worship, offering something for the pleasure of God. But remember, the ritual is just a picture. We see that developed even within the Old Testament. God says to the people in Ezekiel, I will accept you as a pleasing aroma when I bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you have been scattered and I will manifest my holiness among you in the sight of the nations. You the people will be the pleasing aroma to me. You, the people, will be what I delight in. You will be what makes me smile. You will be my treasure. Paul picks up on this in Romans when he exhorts the Romans, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. We are to be a sacrifice, not a sacrifice in the sense of atoning for sin, but a sacrifice in terms of offering something in thanks to God. The point in mentioning here in this text that we are the aroma of Christ to God is that we are pleasing to God. Paul thanks God because God defeats us, and in his defeat, he makes us something pleasing to him. He he delights in us. He doesn't cast us aside. He smiles on us. Now, it starts to make sense that Paul, talking about his own failure, suddenly bursts into praise. Thanks be to God, you still delight in us. You still smile on us. When God overcomes his people with his love, he makes them a joy to himself. And and Paul specifies that the aroma is of Christ. It's the aroma of Christ. And specifying that, that adds at least two dimensions to this whole picture. One of which is that 
We are seen as the results of Christ's sacrifice that pleases God. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice, and we are the resulting pleasing smell. We are what that sac- Jesus' sacrifice produces that delights God. Jesus' death produces an aroma, and that aroma is his people. So there's the idea of production. Jesus' death creates us. It creates his people. It creates something pleasing to God. But there's probably a double entendre here. It's probably a, a, a mixed metaphor. To say that the aroma is of Christ also probably develops the idea that the aroma is Christ's aroma. It, it's, it's his smell, not ours. In other words, we know we're dirty. We're foul in our sin. But when we are in Christ, when God defeats us in Christ, when God smells us, he doesn't smell our sin. He smells Christ. He smells Jesus. He doesn't smell our grime and muck. He smells the sweet scent of his glorious, wonderful son. Paul's going to unpack the imputation of Christ later in this digression at the end of chapter 5. But here we have this wonderful picture. Jesus imputes his smell to you. When God smells you, if you are in Christ, he smells Christ. Jesus makes us, his people, a sweet aroma to God because his aroma covers ours. So we are the pleasing aroma of Christ means both that we are the pleasing results of Jesus' sacrifice and because of Jesus, to God we are seen as Jesus is, pure, wonderful, delightful. God's people are the aroma of Christ to God. Paul is the aroma of Christ to God despite his failure. Thanks be to God. But Paul also celebrates because he says in the back half of 15 and then into 16, we are the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To other, a fragrance from life to life. Paul adds this comment to further encourage right thinking about the ministry, the very nature of this whole thing. It is a glorious, wonderful thing in two parallel aspects. God uses his people to be witnesses for Jesus among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. And Paul switches, you see it in English, we get a switch in word. Paul switches to a word that doesn't necessarily mean a good smell. The same fragrance can either be from death to death or life to life. And that ins- construction from X to X, this highlights intensification, right? A movement of intensification. What starts in death ends in greater death. What starts in life ends in greater life. That's the point of the present tense in the description. Those who are being saved, right? There, there's, our, there's some life there. Those who are perishing. There's death there. And then the aroma of Christ pushes that further. Those who are spiritually dead, to whom God does not grant new life, the smell, the witness of the church, the gospel, it's repugnant to them. It has the stench of foolishness. It sounds dumb and silly. And that itself is further condemnation for them. Affections are moral. What we love and what we react to, that's that's an issue of morality. They shouldn't react like that. You should enjoy what smells good. You ought to delight in the gospel. So their reaction in their spiritual deadness only leads to the ultimate death of hell. On the other hand, those who have been gifted new birth, who are presently in the process of being saved by God, they smell the wonders of Christ in the ministry, and that only draws them on. It presses them further into the glories of resurrection and our heavenly future in the new earth. Right? It, it, you take a bakery, right? It's got wafting smells of all the baked goods, the bread and the pastries, you know, savory, sweet, you know, cheesy, chocolatey. It could be a Japanese bakery, and all the things are in cute shapes, like a chocolate-filled bread panda. And you smell that, and it wafts down the street. And if your nose is broken, if your nose is dead, maybe it smells bad to you, and that, that pushes you further and further away from the bakery. So that, that broken nose leads to death. If your nose is working, if it's alive, you smell that, and that draws you closer and closer. You move further and further towards life, right? Sustenance, the delight and wonders of the fullness of the food. That's what ministry is. That's what the gospel ministry is. For the spiritually dead, it drives them further towards judgment. For the spiritually alive, it drives them closer. It draws them closer to the fullness of their new life. So the same fragrance can have either life-giving or death-confirming effects. 
For a believer continually hearing the gospel, being around other Christians to hear them preach Christ, it draws you closer and closer. It's life-giving in that you follow its scent into eternity. It helps you get there. And if you're dead in your sins and God does not use that work, and God does not use that to work in you a new life, to create in you a new life, the more you hear the gospel, the more you really hear the real gospel, the further you want to be from church. And the choice to highlight both groups, at the very least here, encourages evangelism, gospel preaching, even when it is quote-unquote unsuccessful, right? Even when people aren't converted or aren't saved. And so often we use that to judge the relative merits of this or that evangelism. I don't think it'll be successful here. I don't think that person doesn't really seem like they can be saved. Well, one, that's just wrong, wrong-headed thinking all the way. But two, it's wrong-headed thinking in terms of thinking Conversion equals success. Non-conversion equals not success. Both, right? Both. The choice to highlight both, both groups means both. Both are good effects. Both are the results of the display of Christ in our lives through which Christ is glorified. He's glorified in his righteous judgment against the stubbornly wicked and he's glorified in his merciful saving of repenting sinners. Gospel ministry, when people reject you, isn't unsuccessful at all. If people reject you in the ministry because you have been faithfully representing Jesus, that's a wonderful success. Paul says getting to preach and minister is a wonderful thing, whether it's being used to draw in or drive away, because we get to represent Jesus. And all this leads to Paul's second exclamation of praise right there at the end of verse 16. Who is sufficient for these things? Who is worthy? Who is worthy of these things to be able to represent Jesus to both the living and the dying? Who is worthy? Make no mistake. This question, is is, this is not like a bare academic. So who's worthy about this? No, this is an exclamation of praise. It's an incredulous question. Oh, to be the aroma of Christ, to be used by God at all times and in every place, even when I mess up, to be pleasing to God, used for evangelism. Who is worthy of these things? No one. That's the implied answer. No one is worthy of these things, and yet God uses us still. Yet God is gracious to us still. That's the praise contained in this rhetorical question. Who's worthy? This is actually Paul's conclusion to his opening doxology. He opens with thanks, and he closes with this statement, which is very much in an emotional way, to thank God, to praise him. Who's worthy? No one, Paul says. Not me, not anxious me, not abandoning the ministry at Troas me. When there was an open door, I'm not worthy of these things, but thanks be to God. But then, verse 17 adds an important qualifier. For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Verse 17 opens with for, or because, right? Because it's giving a reason for something Paul has just said. Verse 17 is giving us a reason. What? Is it giving us a reason for? What is Paul explaining with verse 17? This is, this is critical. I mean, he just burst into praise for God in the form of a rhetorical question. So maybe verse 17 is explaining the rhetorical question, the implied answer. Who is worthy? No one because, but then when you read verse 17, that doesn't really fit. No one is worthy because we are men of sincerity, not peddlers of God's word. That, that's not it. However, as we have already seen, that praise in the rhetorical question is the culmination of Paul's thanks that started in verse 14. The entire point of those verses, verses 14 through 16, the entire point of that whole section is God works through his people. God is pleased by his people, and he uses them for successful evangelistic proclamation. But also remember, the reason Paul made that point is he just highlighted his own uh, weakness in verses 12 through 13. So Paul's praise is not just that God works through his people, but it's that God works through his people despite their failures, despite their weakness. God worked through Paul despite Paul's shortcomings, his weaknesses. And so verse 17 supplies a condition. This is a condition. This is a reason for why God still brought good out of Paul's ministry. It's critical we understand this condition. 
It's not a condition in the sense of ultimate grounds, ultimate cause, right? This isn't works righteousness. You do this, then you earn God's favor, you do these good works, and then in response to you deserving it, God will work through you. That's not it. We know that's not it, right? The whole praise started with but. But thanks be to God. It's a contrast, a contrast to Paul's own weakness. So we know the condition in verse 17 is not describing how one deserves God to work through them. That's not what's going on. But it is still a type of condition. Paul is making it clear here. I'm not saying do whatever you want. God's going to bring good out of it anyway. Just stay home. You, know, just, you don't need to go through any open doors. You can be lazy in evangelism. You can let all, your anxiety sideline you. Whatever. It's all good. Paul's not saying let us sin so that grace may abound. No, our ministry cannot just be whatever. But when it is what God wants ministry to be, then God will work through us despite our weaknesses. So Paul provides this grounding condition in verse 17. Thanks be to God. He's pleased to work through us despite our failures. For because we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Meaning God was pleased to work through Paul and others because they spoke. That's the main verb in verse 17. They spoke, and their speech was characterized by four things. It was sincere. It was commissioned by God. It was in the sight of God, and it was in Christ. Those four characteristics will function as our applications this morning, our applications to ourselves as we close by considering how we too can be used by God despite all our shortcomings, despite all our weaknesses, despite all our failures. And maybe this is fifth or a mini. The first mini application. We shouldn't overlook the first mini application, which is that Paul spoke. It's the main verb. Wherever Paul went, he preached Christ. If it wasn't at Troas, it was at Macedonia. He preached Christ. He spread the news of Christ. That is prerequisite to being the aroma of Christ to those who are being saved and those who are perishing. You must actually proclaim Christ. You must actually own him. You must speak. And you must do this, firstly, the first application, sincerely. We must speak sincerely. What does sincerely mean? Well, look how Paul contrasts this with being a peddler of God's word. That's the opposite of sincerity. Being a peddler, someone who sells and often the connotation is someone who sells something cheap, not valuable. Huckster. There were some, Paul will mention them later in the letter, who cheapened God's word. They were into preaching for the money it could make them. It's possible still to do this today. You could do it as ministers or as lay people. Right? Paul's getting at some of our motives here. We must not cheapen the gospel by peddling it, by only using the gospel to gain in this life whether that be monetarily, like, you know, the big famous prosperity preachers, or even just socially, on occasions where it would be beneficial to us. It might not seem like it, but there are still some contexts where it is socially advantageous to have some sort of identification with Jesus. You know, politicians do this sometimes. They, they peddle God's word for brownie points with Christians. They cheapen it because it becomes a mean to a social end. But lay Christians, professing Christians, can do this when you seek Jesus for any perceived benefit and not for Jesus himself. I want some good structure for my family. Christianity provides that. I like the morality and traditions of the church. I had someone tell me that. Like, I want to take my kids to church. I want to raise them in the faith, not because I believe it, but I think it's just good. It's good for them. It's good for society. Good benefits. God does not promise to bless ministry done in that spirit. We have to speak the gospel sincerely. Not for material or social gain, but because we believe it. But when we believe it, when we believe in Jesus, when we believe that he is Lord and Savior, King and Shepherd, Friend and Counselor, then when we preach him, even when we stumble, even when we're, we're too timid, even when we're weak, God will work mightily through us. Secondly, we have to speak as commissioned by God. That means what we preach needs to be what God has actually commanded us to preach. You cannot claim to have a God divine commission if your message is not in harmony with the Great Commission. Baptize them. Teach them to observe all that I commanded you. Invite people into identifying with Jesus, being loyal to him, trusting him, believing him. Many people, many people preach a message now that is totally 
disconnected with what Jesus himself preached and what the whole scripture clearly testifies about Jesus. The message of the gospel, as Paul unpacks and will unpack in the next four chapters, is the message of the person of Christ himself, his deity, his role as Savior, our need of a Savior because of our sin, the work that Jesus did to overcome our sin, his atoning death, his resurrection from the dead, his sovereign reign over all things, his lordship over all creation. If we're preaching any other message than that, then we're not commissioned by God to speak. And it also means we should be preaching in proportion to God's word. We all have our hobby horses. I have my hobby horses. But it's critical that we always are aware of that and try to rein that in. One of the ways that we try to do that here is by preaching through whole books of the Bible. And we, we do that intentionally. That way, we aren't only preaching my favorite passages. We're not only preaching Paul Alexander's favorite passages or our favorite topics. We force ourselves to reckon with all of the Bible. We want to be sure that our message reflects the message of the Bible and in a way that is proportionate to the Bible. Only then can we be confident that our ministry is commissioned by God. But when we do speak what God has commanded, when we preach the scriptures, when we teach the whole counsel of God, then even when we falter, even when we miss an open door, even when we make a misstep, a wrong strategical decision, even when we're, we're too timid, God will do bold things through us. Thirdly, we speak in the sight of God or before God. This overlaps a lot with speaking what God has commanded us to speak and speaking sincerely. But I think what Paul is getting at with this phrase is the idea of being self-consciously aware of speaking before God, speaking in the sight of God, speaking in his presence. Paul's touching on another aspect of motive. Our motive should be that our speech be worship. The same idea as when Paul talked about being the aroma to God. That's worship. When we speak in a way that is aimed at being worship, God overcomes our deficiencies and he accepts our worship. In other words, when our ministry aims at pleasing God, aims at worshiping him by speaking what he has commanded us sincerely, then God will accept it as worship. So this, this phrase speaks to our own self-understanding when we evangelize, when we engage in ministry. It needs to be done, first and foremost, self-consciously, before God, to God, for God. Understanding that, how we minister and how we evangelize matters, because we do it before God. We do it for God. We do it in His sight. So when we're conscious of that, it will affect the choices that we make. Can this legitimately be viewed as an act of worship? If the answer is no, we shouldn't do it in ministry, either corporate ministry or private ministry. We must minister self-consciously before the Lord. But when we do that, when we do ministry as an act of worship, not just self-improvement or social improvement, but as an offering to God, then even when our offering is tainted, as it always will be, stained, marred by all our faults, God graciously accepts it with a smile on his face, covering any faults with the perfections of Jesus. Oh, how wonderful it is that God accepts our worship this morning. And finally, we must speak in Christ. Again, a lot of overlap. overlap. But here Paul highlights relying on the power of Christ. Probably trust is the operative word. To speak in Christ is to rely on Christ, to trust Christ, relying on the truths of the gospel and the person of Christ, Christ himself, to work through those truths that we proclaim. Speaking in Christ means to speak the gospel, yes, without editing, but also with confidence, because we know that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And we know Jesus is real. He is real. He's powerful. He does things. He acts. He moves. It means we must speak all the gospel and we must do it boldly, relying not on our own strength, our elegance, but prayerfully trusting all that we have been given in Christ. We trust Jesus' gracious provision of the Spirit. We trust his promise for fruitful evangelism. We trust that the gates of hell will not prevail against Christ's church because Christ stands guard over it. We trust Christ's ability to overcome our weaknesses. We cr trust Christ to work persuasively and powerfully despite our lack of clever speech or the right words at all the time. To speak in Christ is to trust Christ. That will affect both our demeanor, our attitude, our feelings, and our actions. 
We'll be less tempted to edit or dumb down the gospel for the watching world and we will be more bold, more faithful, more courageous. When we speak the gospel, trusting Christ to bring the fruit, then even when our words are mumbled or our delivery was wrong or our timing was poor or our speech was work or we were just too cowardly, our ministry was disorganized, we missed some opportunities, even still Christ will bring good fruit out of all of it. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters, our ministry, both our ministries individually and our ministry together as Grace Covenant Baptist Church, should be a gospel-speaking ministry. should be done sincerely because we believe it. It should be focused on what God has commanded us to say. It should self-consciously be an act of worship, and we should do it all while trusting Christ. That's the type of ministry that God promises to work through. Oh, the encouragement. Because when those four things characterize our ministry, God works through all our weaknesses, all our failure, all our anxieties, all the times we drop the ball or walk past the open door because we were too tired or scared or preoccupied. Our ministries, our ministries, and our ministry as a church is going to have shortcomings. It's going to have many shortcomings because we are weak. But when we speak in Christ as we worship as commanded and we do that sincerely, then God uses us in all places and at all times, even as we fail. He delights in us. He treasures us and he is pleased. He's pleased to do mighty things, to be victorious in the world through us. He overcomes our deficiencies. He overcomes our shortcomings. And by his power and might, he does great things. If our life together, if your life and our life together is marked by these things that marked Paul's life, that marked Paul's speech, then we will be able to praise with Paul. We will be able to say with Paul confidently in times of failure, I went to preach. I had an open door, but I was anxious. I balked. But thanks be to God, he still used me. Thanks be to God, he still delights in me. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we we do thank you. We do praise you for triumphing over us and for continuing to triumph over us, for leading us and spreading fellowship and the joys of fellowship with you throughout all the world. We thank you for seeing us in Christ, for smelling us in Christ, for gifting us his aroma, for delighting in us, even as we so often fail. Even after our conversions, we so often fail. We fail in what we've been called to do. We make missteps. We are weak. And so we praise you and we thank you. We thank you that you are pleased to use us and be pleased with us to do this all for us in Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.